Well, it's, it's absolutely wonderful to see such a large audience in this 1856 hall, I think. So good afternoon and welcome to the Sydney, Public, Sydney Ideas Public Lecture Series, of course, at the University of Sydney. I'm Julia Horne, University of Sydney historian, and I'm very, very pleased indeed to welcome alumnus Jermaine Greer back to the university for her presentation this afternoon in the Great Hall. Now, for the first part of our proceedings, I'd like, of course, to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And it's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. So as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, we also should pay respect to the knowledge embedded within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Now the format for this afternoon is a presentation by Jermaine Greer, followed by an audience Q&A and then a book signing, which will be through that door there to the ante room. We have two microphones, I think, set up in um, the main aisle here. And so at the appropriate time, please do come to, this, to these microphones with your questions. Uh, we will be recording the event, so it's really important to actually use the microphone so that others can hear your questions as well as those on the recording. So with that, it now gives me great pleasure to introduce our guest speaker. Jermaine, <laughs> please. <laughs> Jermaine Greer is an academic and journalist. And of course, as we all know, a major feminist voice of the 20th century. She's a graduate of this university and gained her PhD from the University of Cambridge in 1967. Her ideas, of course, have created controversy ever since the female eunuch became an international bestseller in 1970. And I suspect her new book will continue the tradition of challenging complacency and fearlessly setting forth what many in fact, may not want to hear. Now, this afternoon, Jermaine Greer will be talking about her new book, White Beach, The Rainforest Years, which is based on her experiences of rehabilitating, a word that she carefully explains in the book why she's used that particular word, a pocket of Gondwana rainforest in Queensland. Now, in many ways, White Beach is part of a relatively recent literature on the history of the Australian environment. You just have to think of books such as Geoffrey Bolton's Spoils and Spoilers, A History of Australians Shaping Their Environment, in published in 1981, as well as Tim Bonahardi's The Colonial Earth, published in 2000, and the work of historical geographer J.M. Powell, which analyses how the actions of many Australians in the past 200 years have irrevocably changed Australia's natural landscape while at the same time, these books show that the actions of some others have in fact tried to halt such destruction. And in many ways, White Beach combines all this and more. So that Jermaine Greer sets her story in a piece of devastated Gondwana rainforest that she purchased in southeastern Queensland at the beginning of this century. She explores the natural and human history of change in this rainforest that resulted in deforestation, while weaving a story of hope, really, in her actions to restore the original Gondwana rainforest. But in many ways, White Beach, I think, is also part of a much 
older Australian literary tradition of women's writing about Australia's natural habitat. In the 19th century, publishers here, as well as in England, really loved to publish the writings of women, believe it or not, both from Australia and abroad, that described their observations as women of Australian nature. And these accounts provide extraordinary detail on natural habitats that often lovingly describe the minuscule, so tiny creeping vines, crawling insects and butterflies and the varieties of dainty ferns and the nooks and crannies of secluded gullies. And in fact, you have a nice statement in your book where you notice that your workforce just think, you know, she's all, it's, what she's doing is too girly. She's looking at all the little things, not at the big um, white beach and so forth. And I can see that. That's a long tradition that we have here. So in many ways, at that time, there was actually a gender divide as men's account, also sought after by publishers in the 19th century, sought to document the grandiose and the sublime. So that while women looked around and down at those little objects, men went off and preoccupied themselves by gazing upwards and outwards, looking admiringly at anything that was big. But of the women, one of my favourite nature writers um, in this period, in the mid-19th century, was actually Louisa Atkinson, who some of you may know, who published articles in colonial newspapers about her botanical discoveries in the gullies around her home in the Blue Mountains. Nothing was too small apart from microbes. If she could see it with her eyes, she noted it. Nothing escaped her attention. And through her detailed descriptions, we really have the means to know the ecological makeup of the gullies just around her house where she lived in the Blue Mountains some 150 years later. So this book, White Beach, I think is truly wonderful. It seems to me to capture really some of that wonder at the natural environment that so enthralled writers like Louisa Atkinson. And not only is White Beach a really good story, it's a very exciting and engrossing one, it's full of tips to those who want to set out on their own journey to undertake the task of rehabilitating Australia's natural environment, but it also explains why it's important to do so. Australia's biodiversity is on the verge of extinction, and since we can't wait for governments to restore it, we ourselves must actually start to undertake this responsibility, and that book is really testament to how at least Germaine has done that. So Germaine Greer teaches us how to really see Australia's natural environment, not as one great ecosystem that stretches across the continent with variations such as you know, some rainforest there, desert, mallee country, sclerophyll, forests, whatever, but as a myriad of separate ecosystems with their own beguiling features. So we learn to look beyond wattle and eucalypts, which most of us see as the real Australia, to other Australian species such as white beech, a stupendous tree that grows to 40 metres and more in height and with a really straight cylindrical trunk and which is a true native to the Gondwana forest. Yet most of all, like myself, of course, um, we wouldn't actually know the central importance to the ecology of the rainforest of White Beach. White Beach, as Jermaine Greer writes, is really the hero of her book. While it was almost wiped out from this rainforest, Jermaine Greer 
and her team have now planted 150 white beech saplings. The, the story is really quite beautiful in here, which they germinated from seeds found on their own property, a notoriously difficult procedure prone to fail. So the book is compelling to read as we work with Germaine Greer through the almost interminable problems of such a rehabilitation task. But of course, I think in the end, you really do have to ask why a woman who had all her life loved the Australian desert for its dry heat, flat landscape, and who describes herself as having creaky knees, though they don't look too bad to me, and arthritic feet, decided to buy a wet, muddy, steeply graded rainforest at a time of her life when others her age were buying a unit on the Sunshine Coast. So with that, I'll let Germaine Greer explain why. Thank you. Well, gee, thank you for that. I'm kind of a, I'm spinning around a bit because I hadn't understood some of the tradition of what I've been up to myself, except I tried to explain last night to whoever it was from the ABC that I... I thought women might have actually understood the way that these ecosystems are interdependent, that we know that the selfish gene is only half of the story. There's also the altruistic gene, where creatures work for each other. And the extraordinary thing about the forest is that it is an organism. It hasn't got a brain, but then neither does a slime mold but a slime mold can work out where there is food and it can find its way through a maze to eat the food and it can sacrifice members who are not thought of as important to take out toxins and pathogens. How did this, the slime mold's not a particularly glamorous creature, but it's got more in common with the creatures we live with every day than maybe the selfish genie ones do. You know, we keep going on about how are we going to save these top predators? Oh, the Siberian tiger. Well, the Siberian tiger's headed unless we save the things at the bottom of that food chain. So I probably don't understand the extent to which I'm following in an Australian feminist tradition. In the book, you'll find out that there, if we have on the property in Queensland we have a tree that is called Syzygium hodgkinsonii, which the ending means it's called after a female person who was a Hodgkinson. We don't know who she was. There's various speculations about who she might be. But generally in the forest, we're surrounded by the ghosts of dead male botanists who've called everything after each other. And even the great Laurie Johnson, who's the man who sorted out the Proteaceae, which were in a bit of a muddle, they'll be unsorted out any time now and then re-sorted out. That's how botany works. Uh, but Laurie Johnson has hundreds of things named after him, including our very rare Davidsonia, Davidson's plum, which is now called Davidsonia Johnsonii, all of which is fine, except that Laurie Johnson worked with somebody called Barbara Briggs. She went everywhere with him. She did, 
I wouldn't mind betting all the really dreary stuff, the, no the annotation, the recording, the measuring, all of the tedious stuff, while he did the brainy stuff and the glamour stuff, and she hasn't got her name on a single thing. And that makes me cross. Not very cross, I'm not going to turn it into a major issue. There are other major issues, such as the fact we're destroying this continent, which is uh, more demanding of our attention and our indignation. But I'm not here today to frighten you or depress you, even though the situation is frightening and depressing. And why is that? It's because when you're frightened and depressed, you can't do anything. It's paralyzing. You go about thinking, I can't bear it. I can't bear the fact that we're destroying all kinds of rare and wonderful habitats, that small mammals are going out of existence every week in this country. I can't bear it. What this book is about is about finding solace. It's about being able to make a change. It's, being, it's having a reason to get out of bed in the morning. It's having small animals move into your life and accept you as someone who belongs in their sphere without fear of you. Uh, and you don't feed them, you don't pet them, you don't tame them. You understand that they've accepted you as an earthling and you have come into your own. The extraordinary thing about this planet is its exuberance its variety, its extraordinary creativity. Everything around us, you might think of it all as fixed. It's not fixed at all. Everything is in phase of becoming something else. Everything is developing and dividing and multiplying, and we are all part of that as well. And when you, when you realize that you're part of this dynamic process, you've, you don't feel, people keep saying to me, oh, it must be so peaceful, so relaxing in the rainforest. <laughs> Australians are so keen on relaxation. You want to say to them, you'll be really relaxed when you're dead. If I were you, I wouldn't rush it. Well, you've got a bit of energy left, do something. And stop going about you know, waiting for somebody to make your existence more comfortable. Uh, because the forest's not comfortable. The forest is a war zone. Every, everything is struggling, everything is in competition. But the great challenge is to keep it in balance so that it goes on improving itself, making itself uh, more likely to survive. And you have to try and work out what your role is there. How do I do this? And you have to start out by getting everything wrong. But when you get it wrong, you watch, wait, live, learn, and discover new ways of doing things. We discovered our ways, they won't necessarily be your ways. But what I do want to convince you of today is there's no mystery here. You can understand this. Botany is a simple, if rather chaotic, science that's no longer studied as such in our universities. Um, you can understand the relationship between an indwelling invertebrate and a flower. You know, a flower is only half the story. A flower exists to please a pollinator. If you haven't found the pollinator, you haven't understood the flower. And once you get into that way of thinking, then you begin to see how it works. And then you begin to see how elastic, how strong the network is, and how important it is that we find our place within it. 
without ripping it to pieces. Now I'm going to try and do a PowerPoint presentation. Um, strange things happen when I do these. They don't quite do what I want them to do. The title here, Not Just Another Anthropogenic Biome. Now, what that means is it, I haven't just made an experimental bench where I'm putting plants to see what I can make them do. Uh, the rainforest is not my creation. What I've been trying to do in southeast Queensland is facilitate what the forest would do for itself, which is why we've used the word rehabilitate. We don't say revegetate, we don't say restore. The name of the project is the Cave Creek Rainforest Rehabilitation Scheme. It's a funny name to give to a place. I suppose I could have called it Greer Towers. Um, <laughs> but I really did want to name it after itself. And it's been very important for me to give the forest back to itself um, after helping it to become viable in under current conditions. Now, I've called it Gardening in Gondwana. That began because I was giving a talk at Kew. Um, and it's also part of a rather difficult situation in which when people come to look at our wild species that are growing in our forest, they put cult in the record, meaning in cultivation. And this makes me a bit cranky because we don't fertilize, we don't prune, we don't train, we are not actually gardening because we're not trying to tame the forest. We're trying to set the forest free. But it is still gardening, and I've had to deal with that kind of criticism. There are people who say, oh, well, surely, anyone who says surely before saying anything you should distrust, surely uh, all you have to do is lock the forest up and the natural um, course, the natural system will reassert itself. That's not true. And it's not true because when you clear land, you change the microclimate, you change everything. It becomes colder in the winter, hotter in the summer, winds behave in a different way. One of the saddest sights ever is if you come down the New England Highway, when you get to roundabout Armadale and you look around and you see in the middle of all these cleared paddocks, a single dead tree, one after the other. Why did they die? They died for all sorts of reasons. They died because of cinnamon fungus. They died because, but they basically died because their viability was compromised, because they lost the community they belonged to. And if, it, if you think of that as a parallel with what's happened to Aboriginal people, it's not such a far-fetched parallel. You take away the community that makes us what we are, you take away our concept of the role we play, and there's no point in existing anymore. So it, I've, called it, I've let it be called gardening in Gondwana. I might change my mind tomorrow and take that off. Now, some of you may recognize this rather um, depressing map. Uh, that thing that looks like an ulcer is Mount Warning uh, with its plug, its volcanic plug sticking up. Then if you move back from there, you'll find the Narang River flowing northwards towards surface paradise, and you will see, I can't really, 
uh, show you terribly well, but just where you can see those cliffs there on the edge of Springbrook, you will see where we are. There's the river, it's going off at an angle, and there, let me see if I can do this. Can I do this? Yes! Hee-hee! <laughs> ah, there it goes up there. Uh, where are we? Where am I now? Um, I find this so hard to read, this map. Uh, but Cave Creek is up here in the headwaters of the Narang River. Um, on their way. Oh, here we are. This is my property there. And these are the scarps of the Springbrook Plateau. Now, Springbrook calls itself a natural park, national park, but you can see there's mostly cleared. Uh, and we have their sewage to contend with, but never mind. Um, and there goes the Narang River down to uh, the spit and um, service paradise. And so this little space here is Cave Creek. And Cave Creek is where the natural bridge is formed. How many people here have ever been to natural bridge? Oh, some. I find it very shocking that even people on the Gold Coast have never been to natural bridge. It's a very scary and very sacred place. And one day we'll know what it means. Uh, it's actually a, a space where Cave Creek falls through the head of a huge cave going back under the mountain and drops in a shaft of white water into a deep pool. Very dangerous because if you dive in there and that weight of water comes on top of you, you can't get out. You'll be pinned under the water. So it's full of signs about not swimming, but Australians think that you can swim anywhere, really. So they have drowned there, which is a terrible thing. Actually, the, the last person to drown was an Englishman, so I shouldn't really blame Australians. Now, most people don't know what Gondwanan rainforest is. Uh, now, I'm not going to explain it at length today because it's a bit too hard, but if you go to our website, the Friends of Gondwana Rainforest, we try to explain it in a relatively unchallenging way. But it is a difficult concept. It's the subtropical forest that covered the, the megacontinent of Gondwana at the time of its breakup, when it floated away to become the Gondwanan remnants that are all around the Pacific. Um, now, what we've got here, I mean, this, is, this will give you an idea what the Gondwana forests of New South Wales, or of Australia, rather, actually are. And as you can see, there's hardly any of them. You start at the border ranges up here, and then you come down through these small fragments of forest, down to the Gibraltar Range, down to the um, New England National Park, down to the Barrington Tops, which are right at the bottom there. There's hardly anything of them. And it's true in Australia that you only make a national park when you can't think of anything else to do with the land. Um, so it's always steep, it's always rocky, um, and it's usually of very little value. However, you may be shocked to learn that logging still continues in some of these forests. And it looks very much as if in the next few years it will increase and there'll be no excuse. There'll be no apology. They'll be saying we're trying to revivify the logging industry. 
Now, this is a view taken by a very famous local um, botanist called David Jinks, who worked for me in the beginning. He's on the Lamington Plateau, looking across to Springbrook. The horizon is, of course, the ocean. Server's Paradise is behind that bluff. Now, this little space here, I'll try my pointer again, this is WCRRS. And this was taken a long time ago. And you can see that we, there was a, a concerted attempt to make level terraces for cattle and for the dairy industry. Uh, it doesn't look like that now. But you can see how beautiful it is and how extraordinary those rhyolite scarps, which are what remains of the Mount Warning caldera, which has been described as the most complete caldera system in the world. But you have to understand that it is deeply eroded. We have been eroded right down to the basic sandstone. This is another shot where you can see a bit better Cave Creek, which is here. So when I came to Cave Creek, what did I think I was going to do? The thing was that I'd been to so many places where I could see we couldn't fix it. It was just going to be too hard. We could clear out all the weeds, but then they'd, new weeds would come down in the next fresh. The next time the river flooded, they'd all come down again. This property is extraordinary in many ways. Um, at the moment on Springbrook, which as you know is just up here, this is, where are we? Maybe gone, little thing, ah, up there. That's Springbrook. And they have a Kahili ginger, they have blue stars, they have all kinds of really serious weed infestations that we don't have. So you might want to ask, did we have camphor laurel? Yes, we did. Did we have much? No, we had two or three big stands of camphor laurel. But the other thing is that the camphor laurel's coming back. As we work our way through the property, we're finding more and more seedlings. Where do they come from? They come in the birds' excrement. The birds are eating camphor laurel seeds and sowing them all over the Northern Rivers District and Southeast Queensland. People will say to you that, that we need to leave camphor laurel because otherwise we're impoverishing the arboreal landscape or something. It isn't true. We don't need to keep camphor laurel. It's toxic. It's killing our fruit-eating pigeons and we should be unashamed about getting rid of it. Now this is an old picture of the property, all eaten up by the cattle. You can see where the cattle have pugged it. By the way, this is a, a property belonging to one of my workers. You can see what his cattle have done to that. He's also still selling rocks. You know all that massive engineering on the Gold Coast of the seaside suburbs with their fake lakes and moorings and all of that? All of that is held up on bush rocks that have been taken out of the mountain, completely undermining the geology of the area. And it was one of the sadder things I found out about Cave Creek was that this property was the site of four quarries from which untold tons of rock were removed. So none of this is the original um, conformation of the landscape. That, by the way, I don't need to tell you, is Lantana. And that will be hundreds of hectares. 
This is a bit of, la of my lantana. We believe there are 15 hectares altogether, but it looks like more than that to me. But we find lantana fairly easy to deal with. But this is all lantana. This is National Park, by the way, full of lantana. No attempt made to remove it. No interest in controlling it. It's almost as if we accepted lantana as part of our destiny. Now, curiously, when you decide to get rid of lantana, when you pull it out, poison it, we use glyphosate, obviously. In fact, we use Roundup. Um, what is left is a cool root run, friable soil, perfect for planting into. But you must be prepared to plant into it. You can't just leave it. Because if you do, within a couple of weeks, there are more weeds and worse weeds than lantana that have colonized the area. Your great aid in reforestation in rainforest is shade. What you try to do all the time is bring about shade. Now, obviously, if you're doing that in, say, dry grassland or in grassy forest, it's different. Eucalypts don't cast shade. They cast, they filter the light. You will still have the problem of weed regrowth, and you have to find another way of solving it. For us, it was easy. And I'm almost ashamed to tell you how easy because we no sooner got the hang of how to replant than the forest took off. And within months, we had canopy, we had shade, and we had the return of bushland creatures. Now, I, don't have to, I hope I don't have to tell you what that tree is. That's red cedar. And red cedar is a basic to our forest. The forest type is called complex notophyll vine forest. Um, and it's also called by the great Bill MacDonald, it's called the Argyrodendron Alliance. Because one of the basic trees in the mix in the forest is what used to be called Argyrodendron, the white bouillon. But what's funny about that is, of course, that botanists are constantly disagreeing and it's had a name change, so now it's called Heritiera um, Trifoliolatum. Um, and Heritiera Alliance doesn't sound the same. You really need your bit of alliteration there, and we haven't got it. But this is how they found the red cedar in the spring, because the new growth is roseate like that. So you could pick them out. This is a big one. Um, this will be a survivor. Still technically regrowth, because all our red cedar was ripped out. In, that's not true, actually. It was felled, but in many cases, they couldn't get it out because the land was too um, rugged. They couldn't get the, the bullocks in and they couldn't get the logs out. So the logs were left to lie. Also, the other great timber we had was rosewood. And I think most of the carcasses we have left behind now that are still hard are probably rosewood, which rots much more slowly than red cedar. But everything I thought that you couldn't restore red cedar because of the cedar tip moth. Uh, because when they tried to grow it in plantations, the tip moth destroyed the growing points of the trees. Now, a forest is not a plantation. A plantation is a monoculture, and the forest must not be that. It has to be a mixed community. In our case, with something like 120 tree species in the canopy, which is huge, this is the highest biodiversity you'll find outside the wet tropics. And that was just luck. I didn't go looking for that, 
but it's what I got. The forest got me, I didn't get it, and then I had to learn what I had. But this for us is a crowning glory. And there's one whole part of the, of the property where we had blackwoods. Now you have them here, Acacia melanoxylon. And people treat them as nurse trees. And I looked at this slope and I could see all these young red cedars trying to grow up past the acacias. And I said, let's try it. Let's just fell the acacias. It was tricky because they were big. They're called widow makers because they have heavy lateral branches that very often fall. And so they killed more than their fair share of forestry workers. But we got rid of them. And in fact, they're still slabbed up and under the old house. So if you're a cabinet maker and you'd love some uh, blackwood, just let me know, it's yours. The only thing is getting it out from under the house is just a bit tricky because the snakes really dig it. <laughs> now this is a stinger, Dendrocnidae excelsa, uh, a tree that everybody hates, but we, I love them. Look at this great big buttressed root. They, in, the, in the rainforest, the trees clutch the rocks with these spreading superficial roots. Um, and this is not a glamorous tree, but I should have stood a person in it so you can see how very big it is. This is what our forest looks like. These are young palms. Um, you can see the Cyathea cooperi. Uh, typical tree fern. Uh, the palm is um, Archontophoenix cunninghamiana, uh, the bangalow palm, um, also called the picker bean. Um, but this is what we're aiming for. Mind you, I have to tell you that this is not undisturbed forest. This is not, people will keep using that stupid word pristine. There's no pristine forest left in this country. Don't believe that word when you hear it. All of this is a product of disturbance. There's far too much lawyer vine and, far, and too many vines as well. The balance has been disrupted. Now we will probably, in a case like this, leave the forest to sort itself out. When we're planting young trees, we have to try just a bit harder. Now this is a very famous little tree and I would hope that you all know this story. This is the story of our forest in southeast Queensland. This is Linospadix monostachia, mislabeled in the botanical garden, but never mind, they just got the gender wrong, it's not important. Um, but this, this little tree came into great importance after the First World War, because when Australian soldiers came home blinded by mustard gas, one of the things they were given by the repatriation authorities was a walking stick. And the walking stick was made of this palm. Very strong, very supple palm. Um, it would be painted white. They would pull it out and cut off the root ball till you had a handhold, paint it white, and this was your treatment. This was your reward from the people who sent you to die in Europe or be blinded. Now what happened with this little tree is because there were so many soldiers needing walking sticks, the people hit the ground running and pulled it out everywhere. It was almost extinct within a couple of years. And now we're bringing it back again. And it's a lovely little thing. It's illegal for us to, even though we plant thousands of them, for us to remove them from the environment. But the forest is full of stories like that. 
That's a typical forest scene for us. Most of these trees are damaged. You can see that they've had various traumas of one sort or another. And I'm still trying to work out how the vines work. I mean, here we've got lawyer vine. This is lawyer vine, a real bugger of a thing. Um, but you very often find in the forest that some of the trees have thrown off the vines. And you think, how did they do it? Did they have a biochemical weapon? that made the, the vines fall off and die. You see barley sugar trunks where once they were tightly constricted. It's a battle in the forest. The important thing about the battle is it should be fairly equal. The forces should be in balance. And once you go in there and start logging and smashing things, whenever you fell a tree, you open up a huge hole in the forest fabric and then complete chaos can result. Now, you know what these are, these epiphytes. Oh, sorry, didn't mean to do that. Um, I notice that people in Sydney grow them on fences and things. Uh, that's how they like to grow. And all kinds of creatures actually grow in them. Little frogs and invertebrates and mites. They're all part of the forest system. Now, these... Oh, what did you do that for, silly woman? Uh, these might look like ferns, in fact, they're more epiphytes, they're rarer ones. Um, the forest is full of rarities, but you don't restore the forest for the rare things. If plants are rare, it's usually because they require really complex combinations of cultural factors, which militate against them ever becoming dominant. If you reconstruct the dominant system, the rarities will return because you'll recreate their niche. And this particular vitidinia is typical. So you've got birds' nests there, you've got staghorns and elkhorns. We have them all over the forest. This is Sloania australis, otherwise known as maiden's blush. And this is typical of, of what you might call botanist's humour. Um, Sloania, called after Sir Hans Sloane, um, who was the founder of the British Museum. I mean, you're happy to meet him in the forest. Um, but Australis from the south. It's in the Eleocarpaceae. Uh, but the interesting thing there is it's now, it's called Maiden's Blush. And Maiden's Blush was a name given to a rose, a Bourbon rose, which is called in French, Cuisse de Naf Emu, which means the thigh of the excited nymph. No, because of the colour of it. It's just a, a, a blushing, faintly golden pink, but quite faint and sexy, you might say. Anyway, so the British, when they had to deal with Cuisine Femu, just turned it into Maiden's Blush. But then the Queensland government botanist was a man called Joseph Maiden. And so they then got into a tremendously complicated boffin's joke about Maiden's Blush. Now, I think you know what this is, don't you? It's Kanjavoy. Now, there are many um, myths about Kanjavoy. This is how it grows in the wild. This, for us, is enormously important. This is Polya crispata. We have a special Polya which is only half the size of that, but none of the botanists can decide if it's a separate species or not. But this for us, this Kanjavoy, is 
one of the most beautiful denizens of the forest. At the moment, it's flowering. Um, but even when we plant them, the brush turkeys come along and turn them upside down uh, because they've got some kind of utterly delicious leather jacket underneath. One, by leather jacket, I mean lava. Um, and they think they're worth working very hard for. So I'll have to go out after them one day and get a few and cook them. Uh, this is analema. You can see that it's a, um, it's a bit like um, Tradescantia, now, or Wandering Jew. One of my best jokes is that at the tip, there's a big sign that tells you to watch out for something they're calling Wandering Dew. <laughs> they think that calling it a Jew is probably racist and not very nice. Uh, this is in the Comelinaceae, and I'm having a bit of a puzzle here because um, Byron Bay think they've got uh, Comelina bengalensis, the hairy Comelina, and they're working very hard to eliminate it. In fact, these little ground covers are adored by our little macropods, and as soon as they start growing, they hit on them. And you can then really feel what it's like to rebuild your forest from ground up. Now, this is how we work. That's lantana, the stuff that's in that tree. In the rainforest on basalt soil, lantana will grow right into the canopy. And so we have to treat it by crawling in underneath, cutting it so it loses contact with its roots. We then poison the roots with glyphosate. But we have to wait for the lantana to die. We can't pull it out of the tree for the obvious reason that if we do, we'll damage the tree and we'll remove a lot of the epiphytes and little things that grow on the tree. So we leave it to rot and fall, which takes maybe a season, sometimes a bit longer. Um, and then, as soon as we've got rid, at the same time, what we're doing is growing seeds. This is our propagation unit. This is how you spend millions in a rainforest. Um, but this was, and we designed this, all three of those doors, uh, there's one on the other side, open up so that you've got a movement of air in hot weather, because sometimes they're very hot. Um, the workers stand on um, rubber mats to stop them having problems from standing on hard stand on cement. Um, and that's what is inside. We get our boxes, our polystyrene boxes, from the supermarket, obviously. They're good places to grow things because they're naturally isolating. They keep everything at an even temperature. These are the bouillon, the Argyrodendron trifoliolatum, otherwise known as Heritiera, one of the basic trees of our forest. Now, I'll just point this out quickly, but it is confusing. The um, Argyrodendron is trifoliolatum. In other words, it, is, it has three leaflets on the stalk. Um, but you'll see that the seed leaves are single. And this is very typical of primitive um, Gondwan and forest species, that the juveniles are very different from the adults, which makes identifying them sometimes quite difficult. This is the other side of that unit. Um, when I first built it, we had too much shade and everything came up, drawn up. So we had to take it off and put it on with no light um, diminishing at all so that the light goes straight into uh, the boxes. 
And some of our trees are very touchy about being too wet, so we tend to grow them on these outside benches. But it all takes time. We get it wrong, or we try several things. We put them in different places to see how they might do. And behind you can see this up, oh, sorry. That up there is rainforest. I can't say undisturbed, it's obviously disturbed. That would have been original, this we replanted. That's my Subaru. Now this is the first of the structures I put up, which is the shade house. And I saw it on somebody else's property. And I just went online and looked up shade houses, and you can too. It was ridiculously cheap. It was $6,000, which $6,000 is a meal in a Sydney restaurant, you know? Uh, I was absolutely astonished. All this lifestyle bullshit and how much everything costs. And here I got a double Parthenon. Because that's what this is. I would live in there. I think it's utterly perfect. Everything is perfect about it. And they ha their prices haven't gone up since I built that. This is what it's like inside. We only have 25% shade. And you see, again, people who grow rainforest will tell you that that's not enough. It's more than enough. And the other thing we do is, it, when these are brown beaches in the foreground, when we've got too many to plant out, which is easy, often happens, we now have a deep shade house. And when we want to stop them and get them to hold their breath, we put them in the deep shade house and they just stand quietly in the gloom and don't grow. As soon as you bring them out into the light, bang, they're gone. They're heading for the sky. It is so easy, it's ridiculous. Now, the other thing is, it isn't going to be that easy for you if you're thinking of restoring any of the ecosystems around the Sydney Basin, except perhaps for the rainforest gullies that come in from the sea, where you'll have much the same uh, assemblage of plants as we have here. But it's all doable, but feel free to invent your own way of doing it, because nobody has the answers. Nobody understands succession. Now, this is the hard stand. Uh, the, we leave our plants on the hard stand for two years so that they get really tough because we'll get nine or maybe 15 nights of frost that would kill them if they weren't coriaceous, if their leaves hadn't toughened up. So they sit there. You'll see we've got a watering system. The most important thing is don't let them dry out. When Bob Hawke planted two million trees with a bunch of school kids, they walked away and left them, and they died. The little trees must be kept moist, and you have to think of a way of doing that. If you're doing it on a small property, then do it section by section. Don't bite off more than you can chew, but it will all go faster than you think if you get it right. If you get it wrong, it won't go at all. Now, this is what happens when we plant out. This is atypical because we've still got some blackwoods above that the workforce didn't feel able to take out because it's difficult. They're too big and it's dangerous. So they left them. We got away with it, but I think probably only just. So that's what they look like when they go out. You can see we've planted to one meter centers, probably two meter centers. That's how they say it in forestry. This is me. Notice the water. The water must be there. You can't, even when they're this big, you will sometimes need the water. 
This is a stinger. I love these. This is um, Dendrocanide fortinophylla, the shiny leaf stinger. Very sneaky. Get you on the cheek and you'll remember it. I actually had one, I pulled it through my fingers the other day. Accidentally, I was going like this and I caught one of these leaves and it hurt so much. I was, I was taking them a bit for granted, thinking they weren't really the serious stinger, so they taught me they are. Trees are not for hugging, no matter what people tell you. <laughs> this is the big sister of that little one. This is Dendrocanide excelsa, the one that provided that buttressed root that you saw in the other picture. Now, this is what begins to happen immediately. Uh, you be, all the fungi begin to come, and then you get the mycorrhizal environment, then you get the orchids, you get the ground covers, you get the very special things. These are the girly things that everyone gets annoyed at me for creeping about and photographing. This is an adiantum, a maidenhair, tiny little thing, very beautiful. This is a lycopod, um, what do you call them? Wolf's foot. Um, and that's a cowslip orchid, just turned up. Uh, on, uh, in a section where we had actually cleared and planted. Because as soon as you establish the humid air, the, the actual blanket, the duvet that covers the ground, then everything starts to happen. Things that have been asleep for years wake up. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I'm, I am crazy about these animals. I love them very much. I find them very reasonable creatures. They're very good hunt hunters, even though they're practically blind and almost deaf. Now you can see here on this one, the heat detecting pits in the top lip. That will tell him where his warm-blooded prey is. In fact, I think this is, um, she may even be pregnant. It's a, a, a python I called Jessie, after Jessie Norman for reasons that should be fairly apparent. Um, I don't think she's alive anymore. The lives of pythons are very dramatic. The female python must, keep, must shiver while she broods her eggs to keep them warm. She's cold-blooded, but the eggs need to be warm. The only way she can do that is by keeping up a, shimmering, a shivering movement, which uses up all her energy reserves. So when the eggs hatch and the, little and the little pythons go their way, she is very vulnerable. And so in the wild, big female pythons are rarely seen. You generally see the young males. But when you do see them, one of the most extraordinary things that happened a year ago is that we had the aggregation of pythons. They come to a place to breed. The female chooses her male partner the other male pythons try to impress her, which they do by dancing. They rise up from the ground and twist around each other. It looks like fighting, but it's much more like dancing. She makes her choice, and then things can get a bit dangerous. One of my pythons was badly hurt because it got the signals wrong and interrupted pythons who were in amplexus, and the male bit the python badly. Um, and once a python has, or any snake, has torn skin, you know, they keep telling us how dangerous our snakes are. They never tell you how vulnerable they are. Any lesion in the skin, any tear, any perforation, and any serpent is doomed. 
You can't take it to be fixed. You can try giving it antibiotics, but you, they will get stomatitis, infections in their mouths, which mean they can't eat, and they will die. So when your snake is not seeking to be trodden on, it's actually trying to get away. So the, the, the solution is always to be aware, to be aware, to move slowly in the forest, make your movements slow and deliberate, don't catch creatures by surprise because their reaction can be dangerous, but it doesn't take long before you begin to understand the tempo of the forest. Now, this, this is Google's attempt at a picture of where we're at now. Now, I don't know if you remember the initial picture, but this is much more. But Google will tell you, if you go online, that this is an up-to-date up image. It was actually shot in 2009. So what you can see there, where you can see the forest drawing in and those harsh edges you saw in the original picture are gone, uh, it's actually twice as much as that. Nearly up here, there's a huge fig thicket there. This is all forest now, all through here. Um, we're getting to the point, this is all forest, all this bit. This had already been cleared and was ready for planting. We've, this is all forest. The next thing we have to do is get up here, up into the lantana. This mosaic is a bit misleading. We don't know how to get up there. Uh, one thing I'm going to have to do is find an engineer who will work out. We think what's happened is there's been a landslip and we've lost the old logging track. The thought of making a new one is horrible because we'll do a lot of damage making a new track. So we might have to go out and into the national park and come back into the property. We have no idea really, but we'll get there. Everything is an adventure. In the beginning, we used to mulch our plantings with um, sugarcane mulch. I don't know if you've driven around southeast Queensland, but it costs a fortune. And it took me ages to realize it was killing the little trees. Do you know why? Because the sun was reflecting on the silvery mulch on the underside of the leaves of the tiny trees. And trees can resist sunlight from above. They're structured for that. But from underneath, impossible. So, and all you have to do, you see, is use your common sense. Watch, wait, live, learn, and don't believe people who tell you they're experts, because in this game, there really are no experts. It takes patience, and it won't get you any kudos, won't get you the Order of Australia, but it's worth doing. So now, um, if you're wondering, the charity is called that, and if you're a bit puzzled about some of the things I've talked about, you can go online and have a look. Interrogate the website. Uh, it's the best we could do. It could be better. Um, I haven't updated it for a while. And that name there, Jurebil, is the name of our not-for-profit Australian company. I'd like to tell you that you can give us donations, but Australia's charity legislation is a mess and you don't actually have any conservation charities that can accept uh, totally deductible donations. You don't get tax relief. But you do get tax relief in England, which is how we managed to run the project at all, and it's why the project is run by an English charity. Now, maybe the Australians will wake up one day. Um, the governments don't want to pay to restore valuable ecosystems. 
uh, but they should give us the option of pay, which is what you get in England. You can actually do that thing of taking your money out of the tax system and spending it on something else. Now, that's what democracy is really all about. And Australians have got to do something about the charity regime. Now, that name, Jurebil, is a githable word. It's probably also a Ugambe word, meaning regeneration. A durebil is a zone of natural regeneration where you're not allowed to hunt because the animals are rebuilding their numbers. Another word that reminds us of the management of this country by Aboriginal people over the eons. So I borrowed the word without permission. Uh, that's the name of our company, but the one, if you want to get involved, go on the website, have a look. You can interrogate it at your leisure. And that's all I have to say. Now we can have a chat. Now the way we're going to do this is we've got microphones on the floor. Uh, I think we'd quite like people to line up, wouldn't we? That's right. So if you come to, there are two microphones, one on the right and one on the left. So if you make your way to the microphones, now we can interrogate. <laughs> Good evening, got, Jermaine. Uh, but I've got one word of warning. You have to bear with me. I never take the first question from a man. I was reminded of that last time. I reminded of that last you time. You can have all the others, but you can't have the first one. Can I ask you a question? Okay, you're going to ask me a question. <laughs> we know that Tony Abbott has a direct action policy, which includes a labour force of 50,000, 15,000 50, 50, to go around, fix up the environment and plant trees. So I was, when I was reading your book, I was wondering, if you had Tony Abbott's ear, what would you whisper in it about his policy? Well, now, look, I don't know what Tony Abbott means by his workforce of 50,000, um, because one of the reasons I'm here today is I want to convince you of something that what happens in Australia now is that we try to do the most important work of restoring natural systems by using volunteers, which is outrageous. We've paid our taxes, for God's sake. This is our heritage that's being buggered up by people who make more money out of it than we do. And then you tell us, well, guess what? You can go down to the river and start pulling up willows. Well, bugger that for a lark. I mean, I won't, uh, I won't tolerate it. I won't do it on my land, and I'm not happy about it being done on other people's land because volunteers can't be properly equipped. They can't be given the tools for the job because they're too dangerous and they need skills to use them. They can't use the right chemicals because they're considered to be too dangerous. They're not properly insured, which I think is completely unbearable. But also, there's something else going on that I think you know about, which is we've been told that the green bureaucracy is about to be rolled back. Do you know who that green bureaucracy is? It's all the people who trained to do surveys of properties scheduled for development to ask and to insist that certain species be protected, that certain habitat be retained, or even repaired in the event of damage having been caused. 
One of the people who works in this industry is my sister, and she's very good at what she does. What they're telling you now is that these people will soon be out of a job, which is these are people who've worked tremendously hard, who do fantastic work, and they're just being told, no, you're holding up development. Yes, that's the whole idea. What we want to do is hold up development. But to me, it's really important that we professionalise the sector. That is to say that if you're a landholder and you want to do the best thing for the land, you actually invest in expert advice. And you actually pay attention to it. You actually put aside part of your budget. You don't think that it can be done as a sort of side show. You actually realise how important it is. Now, there are all kinds of things happening in Australia. Amongst the things that are happening is that people are buying up tracts of land which are to be restored and revegetated in the right way, and they're selling sites within the estate to be occupied by people who will obey the conservation code. So no dogs, no cats, no horses, no cattle. Uh, you actually respect the system that is around you, and if you feel like working as a volunteer, you can. Uh, but generally speaking, well, one would hope, although there are various economic pressures on these uh, projects, and I have to notice uh, there is one house for sale in a project on, uh, between Byron Bay and Lennox Head, um, a wonderful project called Linnaeus, and I have uh, botanist friends who've worked there. There's a beach house for sale there, I think it'll probably be enormously expensive, but it would be a wonderful place to live. It is absolutely magical. And they've already achieved huge things in restoring the four-dune vegetation. And you all know the story there, the story of sand mining and the whole incredible uh, vandalism that that coast was subjected to, and the deliberate planting of bitu bush by the Soil Conservation Society of New South Wales a dreadful weed that is going to be almost impossible to eradicate. The idea was, of course, to stabilise the dune environment. Dunes are not stable, they're not supposed to be stable, and their native vegetation is the beautiful grass we call spinifex. And I'm happy to tell you from being there just a day or two ago that the spinifex is doing amazingly well. So, next. I can speak now, eh? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, thank thank you. you for a wonderful talk. Um, Just can I take the man behind you, otherwise he's going to be a nuisance. That's right. You got that right. No, sorry, How will I'll take the, environment, the space. Germaine, how will the environment movement overcome the bias of economic development that pushes jobs and money, given that the governments own the land beneath, own the land beneath our land? Well, they don't, of course, own the land. Um, the the big uh, agricultural estates are owned by Crown Leasehold, uh, which you would hope would mean that the people holding the leasehold know that the land is not theirs to trash and destroy because they have a responsibility to return it. It belongs to the nation. Uh, unfortunately, they don't own what's under the land, which is why we're all a bit upset and anxious about prospecting for coal seam gas and other um, useful sources of energy to be drawn out of the countryside. 
Um, people are being misled about this. They're being told they can lock the gate. They can't. If they do lock the gate, they'll be given a court order to open the gate, and then they'll be told to deal with the uh, explorer, with the miner. Uh, and this is weird to me because it's not the case elsewhere, and I can't think why Crown Leasehold was set up with the exclusion about the minerals that underlay the soil. You'd think a government could change that by a stroke of the pen, but it seems to be very keen on it. And so I think we have to think about who's making money and where they're making money. Um, no, we have a very odd idea in Australia about what makes money. Graziers have enormous power in Australia. They can stop almost anything, and there's hardly any of them. I'm always trying to figure out how do they have such power. Um, I think they should be paid to restore their properties because most of them aren't making any money anyway. Something like 75% of Australian agricultural holdings has no income whatsoever. But we have this fantasy that this, where net food producers, where the breadbasket of the world and so on, and we're paying very heavily for what strikes me as a delusion. And I don't know why we have to grow cotton, a disastrous crop, there's no shortage of it in the world. And I don't know why we have to grow rice either, especially when we are halfway to killing our most important river system. Um, I, I don't respect the sums. I think the sums are wrong. Our notion of what is prosperity is a very strange notion. You know, we exported iron ore from this country when we couldn't get a price for it. We gave it away. And we're now, we'll sell our coal to anyone who will take it. And we're actually building coal exporting points all the way along the, the Queensland coast at enormous environmental cost. Why? What's the pressure? It's almost as if we were saying, if we don't get the coal sold now, they'll stop burning it and we'll never sell it at all. Well, for lots of us, this would be a desirable outcome. So we seem to be determined to get the coal burnt now. And then we have this kind of vague recollection there's a thing called global warming, which we totally misunderstand. We think it's to do with the fires in, in the Blue Mountains when it isn't. They're much more to do with bad management than they are with global warming. So it's the Australian economy is not actually, in my view, profiting in the long term by the rush to exploit its minerals, uh, or to clear land, we are still clearing land. And we never learn from it. You know, we know that the Riverina is going to flood again. We know that Brisbane is going to flood again. But what did they do? They just put everything back where it was. And they said, oh, she'll be right on the night. We'll get the Wivenhoe Dam right this time. Well, they won't. Um, why can we not understand? We have to reforest. It's not an option. It's an utter necessity. And we have to make it irresistible to the grazier population, to everyone, to set aside land and reforest it. You don't hear anything these days about dry land salinity, but it's still an enormous problem. I mean, I watched um, Tim Flannery and his tinny on the Murray, and I kept saying, Tim, taste the water. Tim, I'm shouting at the TV, taste the fucking water. <laughs> the thing is, it is about, it's, two-thirds of the way to being non-drinkable, or a bit more actually now, and you probably wouldn't notice it if you tasted it on your finger, but it, 
If you walk along the Murray and see the glassworts and the salicornias growing in the floodplain, you realize this river is salt. At least part of it is salt. And we're not doing anywhere near enough to prevent the poisoning of agricultural Australia. It has become, we used to argue about it when we were at school. And we used to beg farmers to, do, to plant trees, to trench their land in a particular way, to reduce the taking of water out from the water table, uh, to reduce clearing. Clearing is the cause of dry land salinity. It's that simple. But they didn't do it. They kept on clearing. And they're still clearing. Meanwhile, we've got this great red herring of global warming when what we're dealing with is bad management right here, right now. And we can stop it but we don't do it. We do, and one of the reasons we don't do it is that Australians don't understand rural Australia. They don't go there anymore. I flew from the Gold Coast city the other day across the fire front in the Blue Mountains. I was the only person looking out of the window. I thought, hey guys, you've been reading about this in your newspaper all week, that's it. And they went on playing their video games. Okay, yes. Young woman. Well, I'm not that young. I thought you said you don't, never took questions from men first. No, I took, I took the girl, this question first, Julia's okay. question first. I'll let you off the hook. Sorry. Look, I just wanted to say thanks very much for a great talk, um, and thanks for what you're doing. It's fantastic, and I think a lot of people here want to do something similar. Um, really, I just wanted to ask you if you knew Bill Gamage's book, The Greatest Estate on Earth, and if you could tell us what you think about that. Well, I do know Gamage's book, and I believe every word in it. Uh, but what is really interesting is now, even flying from the Gold Coast, I could see the balls. You know, he talks about how the tops of, tr of the ridges should have vegetation on them, but they don't. And they don't have because the Aboriginal people cleared it off. Why? Because they drove their prey animals up from the gullies onto the bald where they killed them. Do you know who else did that? Queen Elizabeth I of England shot her deer in exactly the same way. They were driven into drives where she stood on a dais with her bow and arrow, bung, and got her animal. Um, how extraordinary. And yet, when you go back to the original descriptions of Australia, they all talk about parkland. And I can't get over now looking all the time at the tops of mountains, how many of them have that unmistakable vegetative pattern? Because the trees didn't establish themselves again on the tops of the ridges, because the seeds can't fly upwards, they get washed down. So that pattern is still there. And there'll be many more patterns too. I mean, we know that in Kakadu, there have been devastating wildfires. There were attempts to burn, to reduce the fuel load, but there were what we call now inappropriate fire regimes. So what happened? The Yolnu people, who still have their language, said, you're doing this wrong, we'll show you how we burn. And they showed them how to do mosaic burns, small controlled burns that didn't result in the devastation of all the wild species that grow in the area of Kakadu. So, then we tried to transport that to Cape York. But Cape York's a different place. And you didn't have the same intact cultures 
to remember how the elders used to do burning. And you had Noel Pearson to cope with as well, which is another problem. Um, and so it didn't work on Cape York. We've got to go back to school. We have to go back to the Yolnu, but then we have to understand how to project what the Yolnu tell us to deal with the fake grasslands that we have all over New South Wales. If you look at the fires we've had in the last few years, most of them have been grass fires, and they have gone so fast that no one had a chance to react. So what are we going to do with these grasses? One of the things you see I'd like to say to you is, suppose you've got a little bit of land. Think about growing a native grass. Think about growing Thamida, Australis, kangaroo grass, or Ostrodanthonia in any one of half a dozen species. You'll get your reward because the macropods will come to you. You will get up one morning and there they'll be feeding on the grass you made for them. Now, it's tricky because you're not allowed to collect the seed in the wild. The government is full of ridiculous laws. You can't collect seed of wild species in the wild. You can't do it legally, but nobody's watching. Um, we collect off our own land, but we also collect from the roadside. And one of my workers said to me the other day that maybe they're going to end up being arrested for picking up pigeon berries on the roadside. Um, you can do it on a small scale. You can create a small change. You can link up with other people and make a chain of changes. You can create wildlife corridors. You don't have to own it all. Not everybody's as nuts as me. You're not going to pour millions into a forest. But I consider that my millions have got me what I wanted. You know, the Rufus Scrubbird can be heard again, and he was thought to be extinct. That's enough for me, but I don't expect it to be enough for anybody else. But there are more sensible ways of doing it. What I want you to understand is it's not hard. If you get it right, if you're on the right beam, nature will meet you more than halfway and fill up all the gaps in your understanding. Yes, sir. A very mundane question. My rainforest seedlings on the side of Mount Yukai are being eaten by wallabies. How did you cope? <laughs> well, now, <clears throat> first of all, I need to know, well, what, what we have done is we've planted the full panoply of plants. We've tried to make it as biodiverse as we could. So there's no preponderance of any single species. And we were ready for the wallabies, in our case, paddy melons, to give us what for. The paddy melons eat palms. They give them a tremendous seeing to. Everything they eat is highly fibrous. And when you feed them bread, for example, you kill them because their guts block up. So they need their fibrous diet. So we don't feed anything, but I notice they eat palms. But the other day, all the little baby paddy melons were in my rainforest garden, and they were behaving so interestingly. They were trying things. They would pick up a yellow leaf and have a bit of a nibble. And they would take a stick and they would use it like Brighton Rock. They'd be nibbling the end of the stick and thinking about, is that a good stick or not such a good stick? Um, and I was just enchanted, but they have the only tree they ever really gave a tremendous seeing to was um, Hymenosporum flavum, the native frangipani, which is rather horrid. And they ate it to the nubs as if they really didn't want it to grow. It did grow anyway because it's not very choosy that they ate the bejesus out of that single species. So we've never had a problem. 
The problem might be in planting out the rainforest species when they're too young and they're too soft. You really want them to be uh, ripened wood. Um, and, but what will usually happen is they'll graze on everything uh, and they may cause the tree to be deformed. So you get multi-stemmed, which would mean in forestry they were useless, but when you're growing a forest, they're not useless at all. Um, so I would, at the risk of sounding very arrogant, I would say get more varieties into the mix. If you're at Yukai, you're pretty much within our ecosystem, and we'll send you plants to vary your planting and see how you get on. But we really haven't, we expected a problem, but we never put on guards, and we never needed to. Um, we have more to, uh, more problem with the, with the old scrub turkeys turning things upside down is a bigger problem than the wallabies. Um, so just let us know. You, if you go on the website, you can see how to talk to us, and I'll drive over and deliver you some things if you like, and you, you can give them some varied diet. Yes, lady in. Do I have a problem with ticks? Well, hang on a minute. Uh, ticks. We have probably five or six different tick species. And each tick species has different instars. So you, we have them too. So you start off with very, I've just removed one from the nape of my neck that has probably been there about a year because it dug in and I couldn't find it. But today, it kind of, I don't know if it's all out. Um, but the thing is that your, your paralysis tick will kill a puppy easily. Ten paralysis ticks, paralysis ticks on a calf will kill a calf. One solution is not to have calves. You know, we don't have, we don't have cattle and... Well, one of my workers was the other day, and they think he has Lyme disease uh, from a tick. Um, another one of my workers used to eat them. He used to take them off himself and nip them. And I'd say, they're full of bacteria, please don't do that. Uh, but it was his party piece, and he's still alive and got five children. Um, <laughs> so, yes, there are ticks. They're worse in dry weather than they are in wet weather. They're also worse in grassland. Most of our ticks are grass ticks. With under the forest canopy, there are certainly ticks, but there are more leeches. Um, they all have a place in the ecosystem. Um, the problem with ticks for me is I live by myself. So there's no one who can look at the bit of me that I can't see and remove the tick. Um, I almost feel like running out into the street saying, excuse me, can you just check? I think I can feel something. No, they're, they're a problem, but if you, I wear insect repellents because it seems sensible, and the, uh, the good old bushman squirty thing. Oh, well, they, they're everywhere, but, and they're worse in, in, in early spring, and they're worse when it's dry. Uh, but, and they're there. But they're part of the system, and we just have to accept that they're there and be vigilant. 
I hear what you're saying. Well, I think what you're saying is that the extent, if you extend the rainforest, you probably will have less of a tick problem. You certainly will have less of a buffalo fly problem and all those other problems. I mean, the poor old horses in the Numanbar Valley are fully dressed in the hottest weather. They've got hats and goggles and coats, and they, uh, they just look so miserable. I think they'd be happier in Abu Dhabi. <laughs> Hang on, let somebody else have a go. Are you all out of questions or objections? Yes. Could, could we ask you to speak at the... Thank you. <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry, I'm not very knowledgeable, but I was just wondering about in the Hunter Valley, there was a chap who developed this system where he got the rainwater or the water, and it wasn't to do with native plants. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, what water is he getting? I don't know. It was just something I thought of, and I thought if you knew anything about it, it was just that he said it, he said it wasn't all to do with the native plants. It was just getting a whole system going, which somehow encouraged water. No. Well, there's, I mean, there's numbers of ways of encouraging water. Peter Andrews, you can just put a plastic sheet on the ground, and you'll get water, but you just won't get enough to do anything with. Um, I have no argument with people planting exotics and, farm and managing them any way they want to. It's just not what I want to do because everywhere I've been that was relatively undisturbed, like I can remember going through the hills behind Can uh, Canberra, near where Murdoch's got his little sheep station, and looking at the the um, eucalypts growing there and the other trees growing in that same system. And they were all meant to be together. They made a statement about the balance of colors, the balance of pinks and grays, the difference in textures. And it was so beautiful, I couldn't think of any way of improving on it. So then when I go out of that into cleared country, I just think, who would swap this for that, well, especially when it turns out to be all full of, of um, Patterson's curse everywhere, uh, every kind of weed. And the Victorian government actually offered uh, local authorities $50,000 each, up to $50,000, wasn't even $50,000, to clear roadside weeds. $50,000. They could do it for a week. It was ridiculous. And contemptuous, silly, because the roadsides are the major arteries whereby weeds get taken. At the moment, in southeast Queensland, we have a new weed. I can remember the first time I saw it about eight years ago. It is now everywhere, and the local authority still hasn't put it on the list. And it's taking over. It's a selenum. I think it's called chrysotrichum. Um, the locals have all sorts of other names for it. It's a very beautiful thing. It has a lovely flower, but it is relentless. It's in every gully, on every headland. And I noticed as I drove out from my place this time, there were babies all along the road. They're carried on our vehicles. And we, what are we going to do? You know, now, what, what would it take every time you go to do petrol in your car to have to go through a car wash and wash off the accumulated weed seeds that you've got on your vehicle? The, I think it's true to say the cattle truckers do do it. 
that the trains don't do it, that cross the Nullarbor Plain, the, the whole train route of the, across the Nullarbor Plain is just a ribbon of weeds. This is what we're up against. And those weeds can be found anywhere. They're not special, they're ordinary. The things they're displacing are special. They can only grow here, they're endemics. Yes. Thank you so much for your work. Um, my question is, what plans or concerns or wishes do you have for the work that you're doing on your land beyond your lifetime? <laughs> well, the idea is that I will sell everything. I've already sold a big thing that you'll learn about tomorrow. Um, I will sell my house. I will sell the contents of my house and I will try to build up a fund that generates enough income to keep the work going. And at the same time, what I'd like to do is to buy Gondwanan land elsewhere in the world, in New Caledonia, say, Papua New Guinea maybe, um, wherever, Tierra del Fuego, Easter Island, uh, wherever we find the characteristic pattern of Gondwanan vegetation. New Caledonia is probably the most urgent case because mining in New Caledonia plus fire have virtually annihilated their original Gondwanan system. They had 15 different species of Araucaria, of Araucariaceae, which makes it the richest and most biodiverse population of that important ancient family in the world. And the last time I looked, there was only something like three hectares of land in reserves in New Caledonia. So what you hope is you can go and make them an offer they can't refuse, you can build up uh, a project and get people to support it, it doesn't have to be us. Uh, we might have a different role in the future where we're calling upon people working in the same field, uh, where we're trying to put pressure on um, the uh, UNESCO, for example. It's all very well for UNESCO to name our Gondwanan forests, the Gondwana forests of Australia, and called them a World Heritage Site, didn't get us a dime when it came to looking after them. It just gave us a huge responsibility, a responsibility which, in my view, we've completely failed to carry out. So there's, there's work to be done at the political level. I hate that idea. I don't want to be one of the many people sitting on the endless conferences about what we ought to do about the decline in biodiversity, because ultimately, I'm a woman, I guess, I'm used to working, I just want to make a difference. Don't keep talking to me about what the policy is. Let me plant something. Let me see it grow. My name is Tamara. Jermaine, I'm, I'm honoured to have been able to see you in person. I've followed you through right um, when you even wrote the book in the 70s. I've been conjuring up a question to ask you just to speak with you. <laughs> but um, I'm reading a book called Living Water, and this fellow shoemaker uh, suggested very early in Germany that if you remove the rainforest, you actually cause enormous devastation to the, the rivers and the waterways. And it actually um, caused the Rhine to straighten. And what I'm 
going to ask, speak to you about is the rivers and how uh, I honour what you're doing because replacing these rainforests is actually creating a better water system. It, um, it creates a curve in the waterways and develops more land to uh, grow on the edges and no matter how much man tries to fix this, it can't be done unless we have these rainforests. Look, the most obvious case will be demonstrated again this year as it was last year. The most obvious proof of that argument is the deforestation of the Himalaya. Uh, the fact that now the water that used to be held by the forests of the hill slopes is now pushing Pakistan into the sea. And nobody knows what to do about it. The whole Indo-Gangetic plain is now at risk. This is massive, you know. This is billions of people who will be involved. What do we do now? How do we go back to people who've never had any fuel, who cut down the trees on the mountains because they needed to cook on something? We never made fuel available to them. We used up the fossil fuels. We never developed nuclear fuels, which I think ultimately we're going to have to do. We left these people to survive the way they always had, and now the Himalaya is falling down. And the Punjab, which is one of the richest agricultural areas in the world, is on its way into the sea. This is not something we can be blasé about because we will fight wars over water. Be aware. And the people we'll be fighting with will have nothing to lose. And such people are really dangerous. The management of this planet is not a choice. It's an absolute necessity. And we're, I'm not, I haven't got the answer to it. I can't do it. I'm 74 years old. I am growing my forest because one of the things it tells me is how much energy is in that system and how its potential to recuperate, which is extraordinarily uplifting to observe. But then I turn away and I read my paper about what's going on and I realize that I'm fiddling while Rome burns. But I can't, I'm, I can't fix it. We need to fix it another way. Once upon a time, we'd have thought of centralized governments that could actually make things happen in a connected way. We can't even get any kind of unanimity about how to handle the Murray disaster. We're still arguing and pissing about and quarreling about allocations. Because what, what is it we don't understand? What is it we don't get? But there comes a time when you can't look at that anymore. And I, I'm aware that I'm not changing things at the macro level. But I do know that for every little creature, for every extraordinary invertebrate that belongs in my forest and can live nowhere else, I made a difference, a, a little difference, a micro difference. But it, was, it kept it alive that little bit longer. And that increased the possibility that if the situations changed, it could take advantage of the change. And I said to you before, I think that fear and despondency paralyze people. And in a way, growing the forest or your bit of grassland or even your bit of salt marsh that nobody else wants, doing that is heart's ease. It is a balm.
But there's something else as well. If we start a fashion, if everyone starts doing this, the government will have to, regardless of which particular Guernsey it wears, the government will have to stop being so fucking stupid about these issues and talking about them in such an arrogant and foolish way that they'll realise that actually the people of Australia are beginning to get bloody annoyed and it may actually eventually affect them through the ballot box. That's supposing that our political system isn't entirely corrupt, which is a pretty big supposition. <laughs> That's enough, thank you. Well, I feel as though you've already thanked Jermaine. I was just going to add that to congratulate her certainly on the launch of White Beach, which is for sale outside, and then Jermaine will be in the anteroom here where she can continue the conversation as she signs your book. And also, I think, really, to wish her very much all the best for this wonderful project, um, which is happening up at Cave Creek. So thank you. Thank you.